when I first arrived here at the church, if you went into one of the children's ministry rooms over there, there was a mural of Noah's Ark. And uh, not an uncommon thing to see. That was painted by a member of the church, former member of the church, a number of years ago, I think back in the 1970s. Uh, not an uncommon sight to see in uh, a nursery or children's ministry room or uh, depicted the scene oftentimes in children's Bibles. But I wonder how often with these images that we see in children's Bibles and well-meaning murals, things like that, that we get a wrong picture of what was happening there in the flood. I mean, after all, this wasn't a parade of animals invited to join along a fantastic voyage uh, with four couples on a family cruise. I mean, this is a terrible moment. It was a terrible moment of God's judgment on humanity and the wickedness of mankind. The story of the flood is a story of destruction. So if we have images in our mind of four smiling couples and a smiling lion kind of waving bon voyage, that's not at all what was happening there in Genesis chapter 6. I have nothing against, by the way, I have nothing against you if you have your children's nursery decorated like that, right? Because we also understand while there's a story of destruction, there is a story of recreation here in the flood. So the flood was a moment in history that showed us how big of a deal sin is, but it also shows us the story of, of recreation. That God was at work, faithful to his promise. We see in Noah, we see in the ark, salvation, God's faithfulness. We see God's promise that he was not done with humanity. His promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that we keep referencing every Sunday we're in Genesis. This promised serpent crusher that would come to defeat sin and Satan and death. God was still at work unfolding who this one would be by saving the family of Noah. God was at work. And as we study this, this story of the ark, Noah and the flood, I'm reminded of a quote by John Newton, the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. He was known to say this, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Hey, the story of the flood shows us we are great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. We see in the story of the flood how big of a deal sin is, how big of an offense it is to the God who created us. And we see his power and his might and his grace to bring salvation through his judgment and his wrath. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, that's on page 5 of your pew Bibles. If you want to open up your pew Bibles to page 5, we are covering a large chunk of Scripture today. So the best way to stay engaged, read with me, follow along with me. While you turn there, uh, Sound Booth, if you could turn me up just a little bit. Uh, these two services, they take a toll of my voice. So I want to make sure my voice lasts for this sermon. That would be great, helpful. Just a little bit more would be great. Thank you so much. As we make our way through this account of the flood, I want you to see this main idea. So if you're taking notes this morning, the main idea of this passage, the kind of person that God saves from judgment. We're going to be thinking about the kind of person that God saves from judgment is one who has faith in God, is counted righteous, and obeys his word. It's the main idea this morning of the sermon, the kind of person that God saves from judgment is one who has faith in God, is counted righteous, and obeys his word. Through our time in Genesis, we've noticed this intentional structure where Moses, the narrator of Genesis, he structures this book through ten generations. So the Hebrew word there is toledot. 
10 different generations. We're in the third generation today. We see the generations of Noah. That word in verse 9 of chapter 6, generations, marks off a new section. And this third section, this third generation, is the longest of the 10 generations in the book of Genesis. So we're covering a large portion this morning. I'm going to read through all of this, but I'm going to read through as we go. So we can kind of track along as this story unfolds. And as we track along, I want you to track with this outline, our outline for the sermon this morning, three ways God provides for the righteous. Three ways God provides for the righteous. That's what we see in the story of Noah. This first way in chapter 6, and by the way, each, each point of the outline is just a chapter. So chapter 6, starting in verse 9, the first way God provides for the righteous, God prepares the righteous to escape judgment. The first way we see in chapter 6, God prepares the righteous to escape judgment. Let me begin reading in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we see again, Noah's life stood out. Stood out from the world around him. He was a righteous man. He was blameless. Now, of course, Noah was a sinner. That's not what that means, right? So it doesn't mean that Noah was, out, was, was without sin. You can't track the story and think that Noah somehow saved himself because he was smart and he was, saw like a storm coming, was a really good craftsman that could put together this awesome boat. This isn't a story about Noah's awesome decisions. This is a story about an awesome God. And his power to save, his provision for Noah and preparing him to escape judgment. That, that word righteous, it means upright. So, so living a righteous life, we see Noah walked with God. We heard this first about Enoch. This is the second person in the story of Genesis to be mentioned as having walked with God. First Enoch and here Noah. And that this walk with God pictures ongoing communion with God. An intimate relationship with God, walking beside God. Walking with God means walking by faith. Walking in obedience to his command. So Noah's life stood out because it was characterized by this closeness to God, walking with God. Now these introductory details of, of Noah's life here, they show us how he escaped judgment. How he was saved from God's wrath against sin. He was righteous. He walked with God. This is the first mention that we see of righteousness in the Bible. So Genesis, book of beginnings, lots of firsts. Here's the first mention we see here of righteousness in the Bible. And this righteousness points to a covenantal relationship with God. A covenantal relationship that God had with Noah, that he initiated with Noah. Now remember last week we saw in verse 8. That Noah had found favor with God. Sometimes people can read verse 9 and think, wow, like Noah, like he was on it. He just had a good track record of obedience. That's why he was spared from judgment. But verse 8 informs verse 9. This righteousness was present in the life of Noah because God was gracious to Noah. God showed unmerited favor to Noah. So Noah's salvation was entirely by the grace of God. That's the way people have always been saved. The only way you will be saved is by God's unmerited favor, his grace shown to you. So, so think about this righteousness that Noah possessed. It came by God's grace. 
This righteousness also came by, by faith, that Noah believed God. So, so God's righteousness, faith, they're both gifts of grace. Now the writer of Hebrews reflects back on the life of Noah and helps us to understand how Noah was declared righteous in the sight of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. That's what we read there. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah had a righteousness by the grace of God that came by faith. He believed God and was counted as righteous. Now Noah was counted as righteous and throughout the account of the flood we find evidence of his righteousness by his faith and his obedience to God. So notice that time and time again from chapter 6 through 8 we see Noah obeying God. Moses makes sure we know that Noah did all that God commanded. He lived a life of obedience to God and his word. Now these details about the life of Noah, faith, obedience, righteousness, they show us a little bit about the the kind of person that escapes judgment, the kind of person that escapes and is saved from God's wrath against sin. I think that's Moses' point in this narrative. He's showing the wandering people of Israel, they're wandering in the wilderness, the kind of person that is saved and escapes the judgment of God. He's pointing to righteousness and obedience, indeed faith in God. So throughout the Bible, God's salvation comes by grace through faith. In the New Testament, this may even kind of remind you of a verse in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. Grace, faith, and righteousness marking off those who will escape God's judgment for sin. Well, let's continue on and contrast the life of Noah with the world around him. That's what we see in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Genesis 1, all, God crea- all that God saw when he created was good. Good. He looked around. Good, good, very good. In chapter 6, what he saw was total corruption. And that, that word corruption mentioned three times there in that passage to show that something was ruined. So that, that word corrupt, it means spoiled. It means ruined. Humanity, through their sin against God, had ruined themselves, had ruined their own lives. Creation was ruined. But keep in mind, God was not surprised by this. He was not caught off guard by this. He was at work this whole time, showing his faithfulness to his promise in chapter 3, verse 15. Now there's an an emphasis here in chapter 6 and how wicked the human race had become. All flesh had corrupted their way on earth. This corruption was showing itself through through violence. It was a nasty, dark world. And if we take the time to think about the city we live in, there is a lot of evidence of this. I know it may not seem like this when you're taking nice walks around the park on a spring afternoon in Charlotte, but all it takes is to look at the news headlines of what takes place in this city. There is wickedness at work in this city. Evil and darkness. Sometimes we may not recognize it, but it is all around us. And it bears witness to what God saw in Genesis chapter 6, the whole world to be corrupt and filled with violence. And these details help us understand God's grace and his justice working together in the flood. 
he would not let wickedness endure. He would not let wickedness and darkness win the day on planet Earth, the world that he created. And so he moved forward, and what we saw he had already determined to do in the beginning of chapter 6, to judge and to blot out. Look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. The corruption, the violence through that, the human race ruined planet earth. And as a result, God determined to destroy everyone and everything. Now, when we talk about the flood, some people will bring this up, and maybe if you took a religion class at a state university, students, you might be in that class now, you might have had someone point out, well, you know, every culture has a flood story. So if you look at kind of ancient cultures in the, in the Near East, they have different accounts. You can look at Gilgamesh's epic. There's a Babylonian account, and that is true. There are other accounts of the flood. And I think the existence of those accounts certainly don't cause me to question the accuracy of the biblical account. If anything, it might make me wonder, well, if other people are trying to explain the flood, might that point to this is a moment in history that actually happened, and they're reaching to try to explain what happened. But there are some significant differences. The biblical account is the only account that's going to point to the reason of why the flood came, that it wasn't just a natural disaster that just was unforeseen, like a hurricane blowing on land, but rather this was a storm sent by God because he was angry over sin. It was a storm sent by God that had a purpose, his judgment. It, it showed his wrath. I think we can look at this and understand from the biblical account that sin really matters to God. Furthermore, why the biblical account stands out? It's connected to Jesus. Through Noah came Jesus. Through Noah and his family came Jesus. Again, you can track that lineage in Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he, he has there a genealogy which shows Noah being an ancestor of Jesus. And so when we think about Jesus, even what Noel read this morning for us, Jesus spoke of Noah and the days of Noah as a real moment in, in history. Noah, a real person. The days of Noah, a real moment in history. God's judgment, the flood, really happening. And we call ourselves Christians because as a church, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one to get up from the dead, to conquer death. He said Noah was real. He said this judgment really happened. We stand with the guy who got up from the dead. We believe him. He endorsed all of the Old Testament. It is holy scriptures. He pointed to the Old Testament and showed how it pointed to him as the one that the Old Testament looked forward to, the serpent crusher promised long ago. And so we look at this account, it helps us Christian understand our heritage. It helps us understand God's payment for sin ultimately coming in Jesus Christ. The flood, God's judgment on humanity for sin, God providing for Noah a way of escape, salvation through an ark. 
Now, he gave Noah specific directions and dimensions for this ark, and that, that might even like make you think a little bit about when Moses received specific directions and dimensions for the tabernacle. Think about, about this. Moses was writing the book of Genesis, and he likely was recounted that, wow, just like God provided for Noah uh, uh, strict, specific directions of what the, the ark was to look like, God did the same thing in the construction of the tabernacle. Now, this ark would have been around 450 feet. So we don't really measure in cubits. Uh, this is about 450 feet, so that would make sense to us in our, our modern sense of measurement. That would be about the length of one and a half football fields. Now, it's not hard to imagine today. In fact, you can even see an attempt to recreate it uh, in, in northern Kentucky. You can go and see the Ark Encounter. Uh, we, if we think about in the age of steel today, how big ships are, this would be the size of a small cargo ship. So it's not the, the biggest, the largest ship the world's ever seen. But in the ancient world, this was gigantic. If you were Noah sitting there hearing God saying, okay, you're going to build an ark and here's how big it's going to be. You likely would have thought, wow, how long is that going to take me to make? That sounds impossible. And I'm making this out of gopher wood. Right? That took faith to hear that and to move forward in obedience. So don't skip over those measurements that quickly. That was unthinkable, unimaginable. And to build that in a place where rain hardly came, what in the world is going on? But Noah here heard God. He heard God's word. He believed God. And he walked in obedience by the grace of God. Receiving these details about the ark was a gift. It was God providing for Noah, preparing him to escape judgment. And along with these details came a promise. So God connected. Here's the details. Here's what you're going to do. And here's the promise that I give you. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, we'll think more, Lord willing, about covenant and, and God's covenant with Noah. And we get to chapter 9 in a couple of weeks. But this is the first time we see the word covenant in the Bible. And a covenant binds two people together in a relationship. God initiated this covenant with Noah. And this covenant had salvation as its beginning. God's promise, I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you from my wrath and judgment against sin. That meant that Noah wouldn't merely be a survivor who was just lucky enough to escape the storm, but rather through Noah, God had a plan. Through Noah, one man, many would be spared. Through Noah, one man, God would recreate all that was ruined by fallen humanity. So these verses in chapter 6, they introduce the covenant. We'll get to more, Lord willing, details about this covenant when we get to chapter 9. There's a lot of details in this story. I want to be faithful to try to explain them, but let's not get lost on the emphasis of what we see here. The point of the story is not to emphasize Noah's faith or his righteousness, but rather to point to what God does for his people, what God does for the righteous. He saves them. It's the point of the whole story. It's to highlight God's grace, his might, his power, his justice, his salvation. 
And certainly there are takeaways for us as we look at the life of Noah. How are God's righteous people to live? Well, we're to walk by faith and, and obedience. Again, we just see time and time again, Noah did everything that God commanded him. Throughout the flood account, God gives his word to Noah. Noah hears God's word. He walks by faith and obedience to the word of God. Walking with God, Christian, it necessarily involves keeping God's commandments. Living by faith necessarily involves obeying God's word. The reason we want to give so much time to hearing God's words, that we might be strengthened in our faith and that we might, by God's grace, walk in obedience to his word. Well, of Noah, it was said he did all that God commanded him. Well, what could be said of you as it pertains to God's commandments? Do you live a life of obedience to God's word? Are you concerned with obeying the word of God? If you're not, you won't give yourself to wanting to know God's word. You won't give yourself to try to understand what God's word says because you won't really be that concerned with living in light of it. And if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, but you don't live in obedience to God's word, I don't know what you mean when you call yourself a Christian. By God's grace, the the fruit of obedience is seen, it's present in the lives of Christians. Christian, I, I think a great prayer for you and I to pray for our own souls this week. Pray for deeper obedience to God's word in your life. Pray for a greater concern of disobedience and repentance that would turn and follow God and walk in obedience to his commandments. Pray that you wouldn't merely hear the word, but you would grow in obedience to the word of God. That's what stands out in a dark world. One who's concerned with God's glory and therefore obeying him and walks more and more in obedience. Well, in chapter 7, we find a second way that God provides for the righteous. A second way in chapter 7, God shelters the righteous from his wrath. God shelters the righteous from his wrath. In chapter 6, Noah built the ark. Chapter 7, decades and decades and decades later, the Lord told Noah, go into the ark. Let's read starting in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Again, we see in verse 1 that Noah was found righteous before God. He lived in obedience to God's word. Again, consider the years and years it would have taken to build the ark. And Noah's life characterized through, through like, again, we thought last week, 120-year warning, so to speak, likely took almost all that time to build that ark through that long season, which is longer probably than you know his total lifetime will be, his life characterized by obedience to God, counted righteous in the sight of God. Now we read that God told Noah to take his household with him. God was going to repopulate human life through, through Noah's sons and 
wives. He was also commanded to take animals and birds with him. God's plan was to repopulate animal life as well. And when we think about animals on the ark, we may often think about like these pairs of two going onto the ark, which is what we saw at the end of chapter 6. But if you want to win Bible trivia, make sure you point attention, pay attention chapter 7. We get more detail. So generally, it was just pairs of two, but we see specifically there was more than that. So for instance, we see in verse 2, one pair of every clean, excuse one pair of every unclean animal, seven pairs of every clean animal, seven pairs of, of the birds of the heavens. So why would there be two pigs and 14 sheep? Again, we learn more about God's ceremonial laws, clean, unclean animals later on in the Pentateuch. That was codified later. So at some level, it was an operation here, even on the ark. It was God declaring something clean and unclean. It was his command. But, but why would there be two of the unclean and then seven pairs of clean? Well, two reasons, food and worship. Food and, and worship. Noah and his family would need clean animals to eat. Uh, we'll see later in chapter 8 and chapter 9 that these clean animals would also be used for worship, for sacrifice. Uh, again, what's interesting here, God is giving Noah direction that would provide for him and his family on the other side of the flood. Before they even get on the boat, God preparing the way. Here's what life is going to look like on the other side of the flood. Here's food, and here's what you need to worship me. Now, for the rest of chapter 7, there's really two main topics. So I'm going to read through all of this. You'll see two main topics that it's kind of cycling back and forth through. The flooding of the world and Noah and his family entering the ark. And so we just keep seeing that cycling through. And this is a way of highlighting God's judgment and his salvation. Let's pick up in verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. All, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Lest we think the ark was a family cruise with animals, chapter 7 gives us the dark picture. A picture of God's justice and his wrath. That God is right to judge sin and wickedness. Now we read a number of details in this chapter, which I think serve to communicate. Help us know this story of the flood is history. This is a historical account. So I shared that earlier. And here I think is one detail of why we'd understand this is being presented as history. Verse 6, we read that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. Verse 10, we see seven days marked off that the waters of the flood, after seven days, the waters of the flood came on the earth. In verse 11, we get even more detail. Like right, On the second month, on the 17th day of the month, this is a historical account. That's how it's being presented. So we, we see these are markers, that this is not a myth, this is not a fable, that the flood, the ark, this really happened. The whole book of Genesis is history. Now this is also an account of God's salvation. That's what we see in verse 16. Notice how the door on the ark was closed. Noah didn't close it. He didn't say, hey, hey, Shem, can you grab the door on the way in? Like, shut the door for us. It's starting to rain outside. No, the Lord shut them in. The Lord shut him in, that God saved him. This is presenting God. He's the one who said, here's the ark. Here's how big it needs to be. Here's what you need to do. Here's my plan. Noah, you're my servant. Go and carry out this plan. God is the one who shut the door himself, showing that this work on the ark, this way of salvation, entirely a work of God from start to finish. With Noah and his family safe inside, the door shut, the rain, it came. What we see happening in chapter 7, verse 11, it's often referred to as decreation. Decreation, creation being undone. So we read here the fountains of the deep, they were undone. Uh, so certainly we understand that rain was pouring for 40 days, 40 nights. But we see also other sources of water. Uh, so the fountains of the great deep in verse 11, likely that was water coming up from the bottom of the ocean. Uh, we see that the windows of the heavens, whatever that is, water being released from the windows of the heavens opened up. These details picture the flood as a reversal of creation. Decreation. It's a work of God, and we'll see kind of what that leads to in chapter 8. But understand this. In creation, God formed a division between land and the waters. He brought order out of chaos in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's what we see. And what we see happening here is chaos coming out of God's ordered world. Decreation. Creation unraveling. We also notice here 40 days, 40 nights, it's raining. That's probably a familiar number to you, right? So we think about that. Uh, but the number 40 in Scripture, it, it typically indicates a time of testing and trial for God's people. So think about this. Israel in the wilderness, how many years did they wander? 40. Jesus being tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness, how many days did that temptation last? 40. We see here 40 days, 40 nights, rain fell. It's a, it's a time period that, that indicates a, tile, a time of trial 
and testing for God's people. Noah endured by God's grace a 40-day storm. Well, just as God said he would do, he blotted out every living thing. We see these words all and every repeated in verses 21 through 23. It, It emphasizes God's total judgment, and it shows us how big of a deal sin is before God. He judges every single person. It also shows us there were no survivors outside of the ark. Everyone outside of the ark under God's wrath and judgment. Those inside of the ark, Noah and his family, salvation, saved from the wrath and the judgment of God. You see, that the chapter, while it shows God's wrath, it ends highlighting his salvation, his grace, salvation that came through judgment. Well, if we study the story of the flood, something we must be sure of today, something relevant for every person in this room, God's judgment is coming. You need to know that. As sure as God judged the world through the flood, the story of the flood shows us God will surely judge the wicked at the end of time. Some people read these stories in the Old Testament and they they wrongly think, well, you know, if you read through the Old Testament, there's just so many stories about God, his wrath and his judgment and pouring out his wrath on people. And then the New Testament's not really like that. We just see more of of God's love magnified and we see more mercy and grace. We don't see that wrath. Well, that's not true at all. Again, the passage we heard read from Matthew 24 this week, we, we looked at it last week, Jesus linked himself to this story of the flood. He lent his second coming to this story of the flood. He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. So it will be when Christ returns, when he ushers in the final judgment. As sure as the flood came, Christ will return. And there's another act of judgment that God is sending when Christ returns. Just as in the flood there were no survivors outside of the ark. Only those inside of the ark were saved from God's wrath and his judgment against sin. So it will be in the final judgment, only those who are in Christ will be saved. There are no survivors outside of Christ. There are no survivors outside of God's people, the church, the New Testament people, saved and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Saved by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to be saved from sin because he's the only one who could pay for sin. He came as a substitute to die on the cross, and he died on the cross paying the penalty for sin. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus as he laid there suffering and dying on the cross. He died paying the penalty for that sin. And in resurrection, three days later, he showed that his payment for sin was sufficient to satisfy God's judgment and wrath against sin. And the only hope you have in being passed over from God's judgment of sin is to put your faith in the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There's no other way to pay for your sin. 
There's no other way to save yourself. Just as it would be silly to think that Noah could somehow build a life raft or swim hard enough to save himself from the coming flood, it's silly to think you can save yourself from the coming judgment. It's just not possible. You will not survive. Only those who cling to Jesus Christ and are found in him will survive God's coming judgment. Noah got to bring seven others to escape judgment. Jesus will bring you if you trust in him. He'll bring everyone who trusts in him. Through him and only him will you be saved and delivered from God's judgment against sin. Now, if you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I, I understand that talking about God's judgment for a lot of people, that doesn't just seem like a pleasant thing to consider on Sunday morning. But we would be doing you no favor as Christians if we didn't talk about God's judgment. It is just ever so clear in the story of the flood. And, and I, I want to be this clear with you. Thinking about God's judgment, it should terrify you. That day is coming. Maybe sooner than you think. You will stand before the Lord. Christ will return. One of those will happen. First, you either die or Christ will come. And you will stand before God and give an account for your life. God's judgment is coming, the time to seek refuge, the time to find safety and to seek deliverance. It's not when the flood came. It's not when you were drowning. It's too late. And there will be a day that it is too late to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. The time is, is now. Your only hope of being saved and delivered is found in Jesus Christ. That is why we are all sitting here this morning as a church and not out on a golf course. That's why we're sitting here and not out eating brunch right now. This is Sunday morning. The morning Jesus got up from the dead. The only hope we have is him. The only hope we have for forgiveness of sins is him. And what we anticipate and look forward to is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When final salvation will fully be ours for those who have trusted in Jesus. That's why for those who are in Christ, this story should bring us comfort. We should find courage in the Lord. We should be convicted at how great our sin is, how big of a deal sin is, but we should find comfort in how great of a Savior our Lord Jesus Christ is. We take refuge even in the judgment of God. We don't want anyone here to perish in that way. We hope everyone here would repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, we take comfort in the final judgment because we understand God will not allow wickedness to endure. All wrongs will finally be made right. Everything that is wrong in the world will be done away with forever, and we get God, and we get Him forever. We get life with Him, and it's all because the ark of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, let's consider this third way that God provides for the righteous in chapter 8. Last part of our outline, chapter 8, God remembers the righteous and delivers them safely to new life. God remembers the righteous and delivers them safely to new life. Chapter 7, we saw decreation, a, re a reversal of creation. Finally, here in chapter 8, we see recreation, a new creation. Look in verse 1 of chapter 8. We see another phrase here, another verse that begins with this phrase, but God. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. 
In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Well, if you were behind in your Bible reading plan this year, this morning's helped. You read a lot of God's Word this morning. Right? These details are, are important. We see here that, that everything that was undone in chapter 7, it's put back into place in chapter 8. Verse 1 is the turning point of the story. It's the turning point in history. But God remembered. You see, the focal point of this passage, of this whole account of the flood, the focal point is there in verse 1. But God Remember, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with them and the ark. What we read here is not merely that the rain stopped, that the storm just let up a little bit. Rather, we read, but God remembered. God was at work. Now, now we hear this. This certainly is not communicating that God had somehow forgot about Noah, that just other things were on God's mind. That's not at all possible with the Lord. God remembered Noah. That, that communicates God's faithfulness. So God remembered Noah. Because God had made a covenant with him. When God remembers, he acts. When God remembers, he acts in faithfulness for the good of his people. That's what it means to remember. To act in faithfulness for the good of his people. God, remember your people means, God, act in faithfulness for us. We are your people living in a covenant you've established with us. One commentary put it like this. God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. God remembered in verse 1, we see that God made a wind blow over the earth that caused the waters to subside. God remembered. And in verse 2, we see that God was the one who closed the fountains of the deep, the windows of the heaven. God was the one who restrained the rain. God remembered and he, he acted. He caused the waters to subside. And finally, in verse 15, he ordered Noah and the animals to disembark. Well, how long was Noah in the ark? Well, if you look back to chapter 7, verse 11, you see that was the 600th year, second month, 17th day. Here in chapter 8, verse 13, we see 601st year, first month, first day. It's right about a year on the ark. A long time. Faith, patience, waiting, watching, sending out a raven, 
waiting, sending out a dove, waiting, watching, anticipating God's faithfulness to his promise. Does that remind you of anything? It's what the people of God have always done. We wait, we watch. By God's grace, we walk by faith. We seek to be obedient to him in this time of waiting on God to fulfill his promises. He is always faithful to his promises. We see Noah waiting and watching, and then he's ushered off the ark, stepping out of the ark, not just to dry ground, not just to like a a mindset of, wow, I'm so glad this storm is over. Don't miss this. This is a new beginning. Just like in creation, order was brought out of chaos in chapter 8. In chapter 1, order brought out of chaos. God separating the dry land from the water. He does the same exact thing in chapter 8. We even see the same language there in verse 17 that we heard in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. These phrases are clues. This was a new creation. It was a new beginning. God recreated the world, but most importantly, he was recreating new people. Noah, the new Adam, living in a new creation, God forming a people of worship. And in verse 20, we see Noah's response to God's deliverance. Worship. Look at verse 20 through 22. This is how this chapter closes out. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What is the first act of Noah on dry ground? Worship. We see now God provided those clean animals. Noah takes clean animals, clean birds, and offers a burnt sacrifice. He worships. He gives thanks. He calls on the name of the Lord, just like we remember from the days of Seth, when people were calling on the name of the Lord. Here now in chapter 8, Noah calling on the name of the Lord. God is to be worshipped on the earth that he created. And Noah's first act was a burnt offering. We'll see later in the Pentateuch that, that burnt offerings were an act of thanksgiving. Burnt offerings represented a total dedication of oneself to the Lord. And that's what Noah's doing here. He's thanking God. He was saved by God's grace. He's recognizing through this burnt offering that his life, his family's life, he's dedicating it to the Lord, to live for God, to walk by faith, to obey his word. And that was an offering that God was pleased with. And with that, God promised to never flood the world again. We'll look more at the promise in coming weeks, Lord willing. But but why is that? Why would God promise to never flood the world again. It's not because people acted better after the flood that people learned their lesson, that wickedness was done away with. That's not at all why. We see that human sinfulness, wickedness would once again spread and increase. It's not because God was done judging sin. Not at all. That was not the final judgment. Jesus is preparing us for a final judgment that will come. God will judge the world again, just not with a flood. You see, God's plan of salvation and judgment has always been found in Jesus. It was always pointing to this Genesis 3.15 serpent crusher. 
His plan of judgment and salvation found in Jesus. God will judge sinners. The story of the flood, it's a preview. It's a picture of the judgment that is yet to come. That there will be final judgment. Just as there was judgment in the days of Noah, so it will be in the Son of Man. But there's also hope here. Jesus is the ark of our salvation. Noah's ark is a preview and a picture of the final salvation that God will give to all who've trusted in Christ, that we will finally and safely be delivered from his judgment and his wrath against sin. We're already made new creations, but one day the ark of our salvation, Jesus Christ, will carry us on to the other side, to new heavens and to the new earth that we see in the book of Revelation 21, a land that we look forward to where we will forever live with God. See, the story of Noah, the story of the ark, this is a picture of our salvation, church. It's a picture of God's salvation through judgment. And the story of Noah teaches us about the kind of person that God saves from judgment, one who has faith in Jesus Christ, one who is counted righteous by that faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, his righteousness imputed to us, the one who walks in obedience to God's word because of the presence of Christ in us, causing us to walk according to his commands and statutes, the glory of the new covenant. The only one who can deliver us from judgment is Jesus. He's the only righteous one. He's the only one who can save. He's the only one who can deliver. He's the only one who can deal with sin, and indeed he has dealt with sin. His new life is the only life that we can find new life and righteousness and forgiveness in. He is our only hope. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He is the ark of salvation. Our hope is in him. Let's pray.